Welcome to Coffee House. We read Speechless, Controlling Words, Controlling Minds by Michael Knowles, The Execrable. And that was the last episode, so now we have our discussion of the book. And obviously in discussion, we just try to pull some of the ideas out, dive a little deeper, and explore them a little more thoroughly. Sometimes these books themselves and the episodes about the books tend to gallop along because we're trying to cover everything. So here, we just kind of zoom in a bit and, and take some time. So the first thing I want to talk about is shared standards. This was something that we used to rely upon. <laughs> and one thing that was in aid of that was the fact that we had to stand on the power of persuasion. Of course, in a democratic republic, that's the only thing you would have is persuasion. Then people get to make their voices heard. If you were the most effective persuader, then you were more likely to win at the ballot box. But of course, there's a different kind of power. <laughs> and this is one that's kind of peak totalitarianism, or peak tyranny, peak corruption. It's the ability to force somebody to accept something that isn't true. Now, when you're trying to persuade somebody, you get an added benefit if what you're trying to persuade is true in the background. But when you use just plain old-fashioned force to get somebody to accept something, you don't have to persuade them of anything, and you don't have to share any standards. It's the kind of thing that abusive partners use. <laughs> it's the gaslighting. It's the, no matter what you do, you're wrong, and you need to accept the standards that I'm putting forth and that change on a daily basis. Now, obviously, historically, we had a shared standard of things like we're all trying to do what's best for the country. We want the country to flourish. So our ideas, they might be competing ideas, but that is the point. You know, we could be wrong, could be right, but the point is to do what's best for the country. Another shared standard would be evidence over emotions. So emotions, you know, this would be something like pointing out that anecdotes or otherwise known as today lived experiences, that those are not useful evidence to try to determine broader answers to bigger questions that those are easily used to manipulate. That's the whole point. When you use an anecdote, you're trying to manipulate the hearer. And another shared standard was rights first. Rights were most important. That was one of the defining characteristics of being an American was that you have your rights, period, and the government's there to protect your rights, period. And everything flowed from that. So the ability to force someone to accept something that isn't true, the kind of tyrannical power, the obvious manifestation of this is trying to stop people from speaking, not just via billion and trillion dollar tech companies, but via politicians who, who call certain kinds of speech too dangerous to be allowed. Even if the exact kind of speech would have been completely acceptable if their party or their people used it, you know, something that is an obvious expression of this is uh, the Marjorie Taylor Greene issue, wherein she used uh, an overwrought Holocaust comparison related to vaccine mandates. So just the analogy, you know, she was called out for, and even a lot of people on the conservative side were calling her out for it, because they still pretend like oh, there's some kind of a foundational respect and, and shared mission between the two parties. But Marjorie Taylor Greene makes this comparison, she's called out, and then she apologizes for it to some degree. When, of course, on the other side, I mean, it is quite obviously the chosen comparison to go directly to the Nazis and Hitler and the Holocaust. I mean, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez specifically called the detention centers, the ones that still exist under Joe Biden, are actually much worse right now. Concentration camps. That was an explicit Holocaust reference. So it's this arbitrary wielding of force and complete disinterest in what's true. That's a different kind of power. 
And we saw it in, if you read the article, Critical Race Theory from the Gilded Podium on Coffeehouse Corner. It discusses how, or the people in the video, the experts on CRT, you could see specifically how rhetorically they don't allow for somebody else. And this could be, you know, a deliberate technique or it could be something that they just intuitively learned or are emotionally inclined to do just based on, on what they're arguing. But they don't rhetorically give the other person any kind of footing in the conversation. So they don't use phrases like, I could be wrong or but what is your take or obviously more research is needed and we can't be certain about this or something like that they don't use any of that kind of phraseology they just try to batter (laughs) their interlocutor into accepting all their premises so at the outset and that's one of the things this book was about you have to challenge disingenuous conversation because you're really not talking the same language and they're really doing something other than what you think you're doing so when you're in these kinds of conversations, it's it's not about persuasion. It's about whether you're going to wilt under the force and accept their propositions or you're not. And before I would have said indulge them to the extent that you have to you have to so that you can be polite. <laughs> but that's when we at least believe that there were shared standards, you know, when it comes to the hierarchy of evidence and the dangers of personal bias. So politeness is not the point. Politeness is the thing that gives them the edge, that lets them run roughshod over the standard of persuasion as opposed to force. So another thing that I wanted to pull out of it was the idea of Marxism. So (laughs) Marxism is something, it's a scare word that's used on one side. Obviously, it's a scary word. If anybody had better understanding about history, they would be terrified of it. But that's the problem, is that fascism had, depending on which side you look, look at it from, fascism had terrible PR. It's one of those that it's very clear to see because of what Hitler did. It's very clear to see why it's so terrible and evil. If there was no Hitler, if there was just Franco and Mussolini, how many people make references to Franco and Mussolini? How many (laughs) online conversations degenerate into just hurling the names of Franco and Mussolini? If it had only been those two, it would be a whole different situation. So it was the fact that there was this very particular standout amidst the fascists that it's so clearly such a bad thing. And fascism, you know, it has the reputation. Obviously, the point is to consolidate all of the function of the state for the betterment of the state and top-down control, totalitarianism. So all of those things are characteristic of fascism, and it's it's a much clearer thing to see. But Marxism, it's kind of nebulous. You've got just this kind of vague notion about workers uniting to overthrow the owners of the means of production. And you've got, in the midst of that, Leninism and Stalinism and the vanguard party who's supposed to make this happen. So you just, when you have just this general idea where communism is and where Marxism is, where each one of those things begin and and then where socialism is obviously on the other side which is even much worse because it's such a squishy concept and word if you were really pressed to define marxism like you're just on the street and somebody wants to talk about it it'd be difficult to get it across as quickly as something like fascism you have to talk about things like dialectical determinism and why the surface motive of it's just for the workers to take the means of production why that's wrong and you have to go through that So I think we need to be able to define it in a different way that is more clear and more resonant and makes it much more obvious what's unbelievably wrong about it. So for me, I think that the better way to define it is in kind of layman's terms is that Marxism is where the powerful take from everyone and then you have to hope that they distribute it fairly and without particular benefit to themselves. So if you understand it in that way that you're taking from everyone and just hoping that it works out on the other end, 
I think it's a better description to show the danger of what Marxism is. Because a lot of people who are steeped in this, you know, I'm thinking about like James Lindsay, a scholar who studies this stuff all the time and has unbelievable insight into all this. But because he's so deep into it, it's probably difficult to step outside of it to be able to communicate to somebody who doesn't know anything about it why it's such an absolutely horrible thing. And just saying that it's connected to tens of millions of deaths more so than fascism just isn't sufficient. I mean, we read that book, Gulag, by Ann Applebaum. Is that who it was? And even going through that entire book, it was a very long book, had a lot of horrible details about what happened under communism in those gulags, but it just doesn't have the same visceral character as what happened under fascism. You know, under Hitler, you've got the swastika, you've got what happened in the Holocaust, you've got the terror and fear... I mean, even the word Nazi, I mean, all these things are are just completely geared toward being 100% memorable and the kinds of things that you can be aware of for the rest of human history. But under communism, it was something, and it was such a slow war. That's another thing about it. There aren't those same things that really stick out. If you haven't, you haven't read Solzhenitsyn, then you don't really have a reason to be as concerned about it as you would fascism. So just, uh, you know, because I'm I'm attacking Marxism and it's supposed to be for the workers, I'm not a big fan, <laughs> nobody should be, of giant transnational trillion dollar corporations. Capitalism thrives with competition. It's stymied by a lack of competition. And of course, the generic zero-sum dichotomy of either it's for the workers or it's for the billionaires, of course, that's nonsense. We can't look at the world in those kinds of terms. But the, regardless, the important point is that Marxism should be as scary or more scary than 20th century fascism. It was easy to marshal the entire West against fascism. That was easy. It was a, it was a clean, obvious, heroic undertaking that, that you could get people behind. But the struggle against communism was really messy, and it's when we started to call out the government for the excesses and the wrong things that it did. When it came to the Korean War, the Vietnam War, and then the Cold War that lasted over decades. And like I said, smack dab in the middle of all this, we started really questioning. We had the 60s and started really questioning whether we could trust the government and all this stuff. So that's why it's much more difficult to get people to understand what Marxism really means, what communism means. And then obviously on top of all that, you have this conflation of socialism with any kind of welfare program. So it seems like something that's completely innocuous. It's just, oh, well, no, they maintain the roads. That's socialism. But the actual definition is about the state owning the means of production, owning this particular thing or that particular thing, as opposed to private industry doing that particular thing. And just because you have extremely light versions, uh, like having a police force <laughs> of this kind of thinking, you know, there are extremely light versions of fascism, like having a federal government at all, that the sees to the national defense. Uh, that is an extremely light version of fascism, because it's marshalling force in the defense of the state. And it could be to the detriment of everybody in the state if they have to call everybody out to, you know, we still have a, a selective service that men all have to register for. So that would be fascism-like, just like uh, having a government-funded police force would be socialism-like. But that doesn't mean that those two ideologies are a good thing. <laughs> that if you go the whole way, that that's a good thing. Just like ice cream's delicious, but if you only ever ate ice cream, it would be, well, heavenly, really. I mean, <laughs> but absolutely terrible for you. So anyway, uh, those are some ideas that I wanted to pull out of the book, Speechless Controlling Words, Controlling Minds, ding, ding.
And I do. I was actually surprised. I think that there were a lot of very good things coming out of this. And more and more, I listen to Knowles. You know, he drives me crazy on the religion stuff. And like I said before, it's one of those things that makes it very difficult to trust somebody. And I understand archetypically, it might be extremely important to just be sure about the religion stuff because it's extremely useful and effective when it comes to bringing people together, giving them meaning, bringing them happiness and joy and all those sorts of things. Yeah, wonderful. But from the other side, when you're actually talking about empiricism, what's true, what we can know to be true, what we can be certain about, all those sorts of things. It's really difficult to get behind somebody or trust them when they pretend to be about religion in general. However, that said, I really think he's just on the right track when he talks to him and Liz Wheeler. Liz Wheeler's another one who they are just so on the right track when it comes to the direction that we need to go, more so than a lot of other commentators who still kind of see the old way as the as the way to do it. <laughs> But culture is number one. That's what it seems like to me is that culture is number one and we need to set aside the economics and being focused on the economics and all those sorts of things. We know what's good for that and how that can be effective in the background, but we really need to focus on the culture. And I think that's what they stand for. I think this book stands for and I think it's completely right. So anyway. That was the discussion. We had the episode where we went through the whole book in the last one. And I actually think, which book am I reading right now? I started 1776. I got a Herman Hess book. I'd never read Herman Hess, so I wanted to try that. But I actually think that I'm going to do for the next episode, I'm going to do Neil Gaiman, his uh, book on Norse mythology. I think I'm doing that. I love Norse mythology so much. And Neil Gaiman, I mean, I didn't know how many books that guy wrote. He has a lot of books. But I think it'll be a lot of fun. So I'm just going to, I'm going to do that one, take a quick sojourn through there, figure out what's coming up next on the uh, literature front, and then we'll be able to, uh, you know, move on to the next stuff. So anyway, uh, thank you very much for listening to that. You can check out uh, articles. I'm going to have more articles coming up on Substack soon here. There's one up there now, so go check that out. That's Coffee House Corner, and uh, I'll see you on the next one. All right, bye. (laughs) 